right, brothers and sisters, it is time for us to take out God's word together. And if you will, go now to Mark chapter 11 in your Bibles with me. We will begin today at Mark chapter 11, verse 12, and we'll be reading down to verse 25 as our text this morning. We're going to be talking about disguises for a bit. It's part of the point of our text today. And it's, it's, it's interesting to think about disguises because this is a, a thing that all of us have experienced. I think if you're anything like me, we all really enjoy hearing stories about or watching movies about people who are masters of disguise and they can avoid detection by the authorities or the government or whatever it is. We remember not too long ago when all of our kids who are with us in the service today dressed up for Halloween, or a lot of our kids did. Uh, a lot of you were wearing very interesting costumes. Some of you, I did not even realize it was you until you, you told me who you were, and that was a really good disguise, right? Why do we wear disguises? Well, sometimes if it's like Halloween, we're, we're just trying to be a different person, right? Sometimes we wear a disguise to be a different person. I don't want to be the person that I am. I want to be someone else or I want to be anonymous. A long time ago, I used to have masquerade balls and I always got confused at those because I don't really think just covering your eyes is much of a disguise at all. I can, you can always tell who that is. But I wonder if the idea might have been that, that, that people not knowing who you are gives you a little bit more freedom, right? Sometimes you just don't want people to know it's you wasn't too long ago where I, I, I didn't know who anybody was because y'all were all coming in here with a mask on. And I, I had to look at your eyes and your hair. And is that, is that that person or see them out in the grocery? Maybe that's that person. Maybe it's not. Should I say something? Should I not? We all had masks on. But we're at church today. I think many of us know what it feels like to put on a disguise or to put on a mask even though we're not wearing anything physically. We do that for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's to hide who we really are on the inside. Sometimes it's to protect ourselves, not from diseases necessarily, but from what we think other people might think of us. We put on disguises so many times in our lives where what's on the outside is not really what's on the inside. What's on the outside is not really who I am. It's a form of protection. It's a form of deception. And sometimes it's even a form of self-deception. I want you to see this in our text today, especially when we consider this spiritually. We've got a text today that is interesting in the way that it is structured and sometimes even confusing in the way that Mark gives it to us. Let's read Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. I'll read down to verse 25. This is God's word. Mark writes, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's begin at the beginning of the text, verses 12, 13, and 14. Jesus cursing the fig tree. Now, we need to admit right off the bat, this is a confusing passage. This is a hard one. It's a difficult teaching. It's a difficult thing to to really understand. What is Jesus doing here? Now, what makes this so difficult is not only that Jesus curses this fig tree, but it's this detail that Mark includes at the end of verse 13. For it was not the season for figs. Jesus comes to this tree, finds no fruit on it, and curses it, but then we see it was not even the season for figs. What is going on here? Let me tell you, as as a preacher and as someone who is tasked to explain this passage to you, my job would have been a whole lot easier this past week if that little persnickety detail was not there, that it wasn't the season for figs. I mean, it would have been a nice, tidy, moral story. I'd just give it to you, right? But it's there, and I've got to deal with it. It's almost annoying. But that's God's word many times, is it not? That's God's word for us. There are many details in the Bible that, that make it difficult for us to understand it. That if they weren't there, it would be a lot, lot neater, a lot easier to accept, a lot easier to have, perhaps understand the lesson. But that tells us a few, thi- a few things. It tells us a few things. Number one, this is exactly what we should expect to find if this is a real, genuine eyewitness account and not something that is made up trying to get us to, to believe a lie. It's exactly what we would expect to find in real eyewitness accounts. Details that muddle things up. Details that make it harder to really pull out what what we're supposed to pull out. That's exactly what you find in eyewitness testimony. It's exactly what you find in real life. You see, if, if this was a book full of stories made up to dupe us into believing a lie, Guys like Mark and and the other apostles would not have included details that are unnecessarily confusing or difficult. They wouldn't have included that stuff. The only explanation for things like this is that this stuff really happened, that these people were really there, that Peter is really relaying what actually happened that day to Mark with the, the, the details, whether they're, they're easy for Mark to pass along or hard. And that's comforting and encouraging to us. That this is a legitimate, real eyewitness account. But the other thing I want to encourage you with this morning is that when we come to places in the Bible that are difficult and hard to understand, may we not be people who, who simply want to run on ahead and avoid them 
and act like they're not there and put them out of sight and out of mind. May we be people who face them head on and wrestle with them. Because we believe what Paul says and what God says in 2 Timothy 3. We believe that all scripture, all the Bible, is breathed out by God and all of it is profitable for us. We believe that all of it is. And so if we come to a passage that is difficult, it is honoring to the Lord and good for our souls to stop and to wrestle with it and to do all we can to try to pull out of this text the benefit that the Lord has for us. When we come to a passage that we don't understand, the problem is not with God. And the problem is not with God's word. The problem is with us and our lack of information, or perhaps it's our lack of belief, or perhaps it's something else, but it's not the Lord, and it's not his word. We believe that with all of our hearts. And so we face these difficulties head on, knowing that there is something here for us that the Lord wants to give us, even in the midst of what seems like a difficulty. Now, let's get back to it. What is Jesus doing here? This is legitimately confusing. First, I want to encourage you to get it out of your head that this was unfair what Jesus did to this tree. He cursed the tree to never produce fruit again, but it wasn't even the season for figs. Why would he do that to a tree? Brothers and sisters, this is a tree. He can do whatever he wants, and we shouldn't bat an eye at anything he does. Perhaps there are times in Scripture where we might wonder about the, the fairness or the justice in the way God treats human beings. But this is the Lord Jesus, maker of heaven and earth, and this is one of his trees. If he wanted to rip it out of the ground and throw it in a, a, a fire for no reason at all, we shouldn't bat an eye. It's a tree. So let's not think in terms of fairness here, but we're still left with why. We're still left with what is he doing. There's, there's two really important details in verse 13 that tip us off. Two really important details in verse 13. Verse 13, it says, Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, Jesus went to see if he could find anything on it. He saw it in the distance, and in the distance he saw that it was in leaf. Now verse 12 tells us Jesus was hungry. And so seeing this tree from a distance... He goes trying to find food, and he thinks there will be food on it because of the the outward appearance. The outward appearance of the tree is that it's in leaf. Now, let me tell you, even though it wasn't the season for figs in this part of the world, in this type of tree, what would have happened at that time was the fig tree begins to be in leaf, and these little pre-figs would have been on the tree. They're not fully formed figs, but they would have been edible, and they would have even been sweet. They would have been food fruit that Jesus could have picked off and eaten, even though they weren't fully developed figs because it wasn't full season yet. But the tree being in leaf is how he knew. The way that you knew that, that those little prefigs were there was, were the leaves. And so Jesus sees it from a distance, comes expecting to find fruit, and when he looks up under the leaves, no fruit. And that is why he curses the tree. May you never bear fruit again. This is a tree that appeared on the outside from a distance that it should have had fruit on it. But no fruit was there. This is a picture of the nation of Israel in Jesus' day. It's a picture of God's people, the Israelites, in Jesus' day. By outward appearances, they seemed religious. They seemed like they were worshiping God. But upon closer examination, so many of them had no 
fruit. No fruit. The outward appearance was a disguise. Jesus cleansing the temple that we're going to look at here in just a moment is a perfect example and illustration of this principle. The outward appearance was of religious devotion. But upon closer examination, no fruit. There's a warning here for each one of us, brothers and sisters. Each one of us needs to heed this warning. The warning is this. If you are all show, but there is no fruit produced in your life, you are in danger of hearing Jesus' curse as well. If you are all show, but there is no fruit produced in your life, you are in danger of hearing Jesus' curse as well. The curse that will come on Judgment Day from the mouths of the Lord Jesus, the mouth of the Lord Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me. If Jesus judges a fig tree for failing to bear fruit, how much more will he judge people? Now, what do we mean there by bearing fruit? That's all important if we're talking about the possibility of hearing the curse of the Lord Jesus. What do we mean by bearing fruit? Well, think of a tree for a moment and think of what, a fruit, what fruit is on a tree. Fruit is evidence of the life within a tree. Fruit is evidence of the life within a tree. The fruit is not what causes the tree to be alive. The fruit is evidence of the fact that the tree is alive. It has life. And so fruit, spiritually, is the same thing as the works that James talks about in James chapter 2 when he talks about how faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. You remember this? James 2. Many say they have faith. Many say they believe in Jesus. Many even say that, that they are committed to the Lord because they attend worship services. But the evidence is in the fruit of someone's life or lack thereof. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. What is, what is the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that someone has the Spirit inside of them? The fruit of the Spirit is, kids, you remember this? The fruit of the Spirit, there's nine of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit being within a person. Elsewhere in Scripture, we find fruit spoken of as repentance, and even in another place as good works. And so at the judgment... At Judgment Day, God will take an objective look at our lives and everything that we have done. And our fruit will show clear and definitive evidence whether or not we had hearts that were changed by Jesus Christ. Our fruit will show clear and definitive evidence whether or not we had the Holy Spirit living inside of us, whether we were saved or not. And so the warning is this. Just because you say you believe in Jesus doesn't mean you are right with God. Just because you attend worship services doesn't mean you are right with God. If someone were to take a look at your life, and let's say they could watch a video of your life, but there was no audio, only video. There's no sound. So they couldn't hear anything that you said in your life, but they could see everything that you did. If someone watched a video of your life like that, 
would they see a life that looks any different from an unbeliever trying to to live a decent life? Would they see anything different from unbelievers if all they saw were your actions? Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. He says, I am the, the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Or listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 3.10. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So heed this warning, my friends. Heed this warning, brothers and sisters. The warning of the fig tree and the leaves that disguised what, what was really underneath or what wasn't underneath. Now, I said before, the, the, the scene with Jesus clearing the temple in verses 15 and following is a wonderful illustration of that principle. So let's go there now. This event described in verses 15 through 19 is something we might not understand on the surface, and so it requires a little bit of background and explanation. At this point during the year in Jerusalem, that's where the the temple was located, the big city of Jerusalem, really the religious capital of the world, there would be many, many people who had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. There was many people in Jerusalem at this point. The, the normal population of the city had swelled massively. The temple would have been packed way more than normal. And in that temple, coming and going, would be many people who were from out of town, many people who were from long distances out of town, but they had come to make sacrifices to the Lord at the prescribed place. But if you had traveled a great distance to make a sacrifice to the Lord, many times you couldn't carry with you the whole way the animal that you needed. And so when you got there, you needed to purchase something. You needed to buy an animal to sacrifice to the Lord. And so in the temple were those who on the surface seemed to be trying to help people worship God. Were those who were selling animals to be sacrificed. And even those who were money changers. Because many people came from so far away, they had to exchange currency. And so it seems on the surface, these people are are helping other people worship the Lord, right? They're helping people do what they're supposed to do before God. These people, having traveled, needed to exchange money and buy a sacrifice so that they could do their duty before God. But in verse 17, Jesus says that they had turned God's house into a den of robbers. Why does he say that? A den of robbers. It's because through these transactions, they were taking advantage of people to line their own pockets, to make money. The money changers were cheating in their exchange rates. Those selling animals, driving up prices because they could, because demand was high. And many Bible scholars believe the priests, even the priests in the temple, were making it all possible by taking their own cut off the top and allowing those people to be there. And so, on the outside... It seems like they're helping people to worship God. 
But in reality, on the inside, they were full of greed, taking advantage of the poor and the vulnerable and those who had traveled. Those who were supposed to be leading people in humble worship and seeking God from the heart had actually forgotten all about why they were there and instead were trying to line their pockets from a very fortuitous event. And so Jesus flips over their tables. And Jesus drives out those who are buying and selling. Jesus disrupts the whole thing because the place of worship had become a place of sin. The place of worship had become a place of sin. It's the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be. This is an abomination before God. There is yet another warning for us here today, brothers and sisters. You might read this passage and think, hey, no danger here. We don't have temples. We're not sacrificing animals. And that would be a grave mistake to think like that. The temple at this day and age is something that that we do not really deal with in the new covenant in the way that we follow Jesus. But the New Testament tells us, Paul specifically in 1 Corinthians tells us, what the temple is in the new covenant. What is the temple in the new covenant? It's us. We are the temple. There's two aspects to this, actually. In 1 Corinthians, there's two aspects to, to the fact that we are the temple. We are the temple corporately, as the body of Christ, as the church. We are the temple. Not the church building, but the people of the church. We are where the Spirit of God dwells on earth. That's what the temple is, where the Spirit of God dwells on earth. We are the temple, the church, brothers and sisters, corporately. But it also says in 1 Corinthians that your body, if you're a Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a place where the Holy Spirit dwells on earth, right? Because when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And so there's two aspects there. And so there's also two aspects to this warning. There's two aspects to this warning. May we beware, brothers and sisters, not to do what they did here in this temple, not to turn a place that the Holy Spirit dwells, a place of worship, into a place of sin. Let's start with corporately. Corporately. Oh, how easy it is for churches to become places of sin. It is very easy for churches to become places of sin. The warning here is is not... Don't let your kids sell stuff for school fundraisers inside the church building. That's not the warning here, okay? The church building is not the temple. It's, it's us. It's the people. The warning is this. Don't let your hearts forget why you're here when we gather. Don't forget the whole reason we're here when we gather. Don't turn this into a gathering of sin in, instead of a gathering of worship. How does that happen? Well, it happens when a church uses doctrine to prey upon the weak and vulnerable. That's one way it happens. When a church uses doctrine to prey upon the weak and vulnerable. In the Middle Ages, right around the time of Reformation and before, the Catholic Church used the doctrine of purgatory to prey upon people and to to swindle them out of their money. Because the idea was, if you have a loved one who's suffering in purgatory... All you have to do is buy one of our indulgences and you can spring them out. You can get them out of purgatory. And people were believing that horrible lie while the Catholic Church lined its pockets to build its ornate buildings and to pay priests. 
Or you think of the prosperity gospel preachers and fake healers of today on TV, fleecing people out of their money, teaching that if you only give enough money in an act of faith, then God will heal you or give you what you've always wanted. Meanwhile, the money comes in and they go off and buy their own private jets. Or you might think of a minister of an actual church. This happens, has happened. It's been in the news in past years and decades. Ministers using their position of power and influence to prey upon women and children and those who are vulnerable. But we can also turn this gathering into a gathering of sin in other ways. When we come together, when we come together for worship, if, we, if it's a gathering not, not just of singing and listening to a sermon, but of gossip, of gossip about others. Sometimes we even cloak our gossip in the idea that we're concerned, we're asking for prayer for someone or something like that. We can turn this into a gathering of sin instead of a gathering of worship. Or perhaps, perhaps we can forget why we're here and we can come instead of trying to worship God and love one another, we can have a spirit of competition, trying to outdress one another, trying to out-impress one another to make everyone think we're holier than we are. We can forget why we're here and become so committed to our man-made traditions that we begin to think it's all about following those than following the God of the Bible. Brothers and sisters, there is a danger here in tradition leading us away from the God of the Bible and the love of others. Brothers and sisters, we must always be willing to sacrifice our church traditions for loving people and for worshiping God. Not our doctrine. We will never sacrifice doctrine, clear teachings of the word, in the name of loving people. Many churches will do that. But brothers and sisters, we, we, we must be willing to sacrifice our own man-made traditions in the name of loving people and worshiping our God. Most of the time, our, our church traditions and loving people won't be in conflict with one another. Most of the time they won't be in conflict, but every now and then they will. And let's always remember that there is a definitive line between the things that we do because God said we must do them in his word and the things that we do because a long time ago somebody decided that's the way we're going to do them here. And just because we've always done them that way does not mean we always have to. There's a very big difference between man-made tradition and following the explicit commandments of God. And the longer you do something a certain way, the more blurry that line between them gets. We've always got to remember to hold those things with a very open and loose hand while holding the commandments and the doctrine of the Lord with a very closed and unrelenting hand. Now I said that was corporate. Corporate. Listen to these verses. Listen to these verses in Malachi and Revelation about how churches and gatherings of worship can actually become a stench in the nostrils of God. Malachi 1.10 says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. This is God talking. Shut the doors to the temple. 
Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors so that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. God hates the hypocrisy of going through outward forms of worship while our hearts are far from him. So much so that he says, I would rather you not come than do it that way. Oh, that there was someone who would shut the doors. Listen to Jesus' pronouncement to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 5. Revelation 2, verse 5, Jesus says to that church, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know what that means, remove its lampstand? I'm going to shut you down. Sometimes it's the will of Jesus to close a church. If a church has descended into hypocrisy, turning the gathering of worship into a gathering of sin, forgetting why we're here, there comes a point to where Jesus is like, I'm going to snuff you out. It's my will for that church to close its doors. But this is also individual, brothers and sisters. Individual. It's not just corporate. We individually are the temple. And so individually, our lives can become like the fig tree we talked about earlier. All show and no fruit. That's a warning we've got to heed. That cannot happen with us. To where outward forms of religion are being done. But we have on the inside hearts that are full of greed and envy and competition and selfishness and pride and things like these. It's not just corporate. it's, It's individual. It's each one of our hearts. And so take that cleansing of the temple and Jesus saying, you've turned this place of God into an abomination, a place of sin, and apply that not only to the body of Christ here, but let's all apply that to our each individual hearts. If we are the temple, we are a, a temple of the Holy Spirit, then there's a warning for us individually here that we can do this to ourselves and our own hearts today. Finally, I want to, to look briefly at the last section in our passage. It starts in verse 20. The lesson from the withered fig tree, my text gives the heading. Notice in verse 20, they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembers. He remembers and he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it has withered. The fig tree actually withered. The disciples see Jesus' power. They see Jesus' command over his own creation. The maker of heaven and earth says but a word. And that fruit will indeed never bear fruit again because Jesus said so. That's the authority that our Lord has over his creation. But then what do we do with verses 22 to 24? Where Jesus says, have faith in God. And then he says, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What do we do with this? There have been those who take this and simply say, all you have to do is believe strongly enough and then you can essentially speak things into existence. If you believe strongly enough, you can just speak anything into existence. Many have taken this passage as a blank check from God. You can have anything you want if you ask with enough faith. 
I hope you can see immediately the connection between that interpretation and the prosperity gospel that we talked about earlier. The, the absolute abomination of a teaching that you can have riches and wealth and everything you ever desired if you only have enough faith. But Jesus' own prayer, just a few days after this event, tells us otherwise. Jesus' own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is crying and sweating and praying to the Father in intense agony, and he says to God, If possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup of suffering he was about to endure on the cross. If possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. And then even Jesus himself says, Yet not my will, but yours be done. There is an implied condition in what Jesus says here. An implied condition. And the implied condition is, if the thing you are asking for is the Father's will. If the thing you are asking for is the Father's will. Listen to 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Listen to, to this teaching on prayer. John writes, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Anything according to his will. That is such an important qualification. We cannot leave this off. Even Jesus did not leave it off in praying to the Father in the garden. But still, I'm, I'm kind of left with, really? Moving a mountain? Really? Moving a mountain? Now, you could say perhaps that's metaphorical. Perhaps that's symbolic, right? A faith that can move mountains. Perhaps that's symbolic. And, and perhaps it is. Perhaps it very well is. Jesus doesn't explain himself there. Boy, I wish he did. But picture this. You pray with faith in front of a mountain. God, I, I pray that you would move this mountain into the sea. Your whole life, you, you return to that mountain and it's still just sitting there. You thought you prayed with faith. Your whole life, it's still just sitting there. And then you die. What came of that? And what you never saw was, 10,000 years later, that mountain was actually in the sea. Through the process of slow erosion, brought about by the Lord. Could have very well been the result of one person's prayer. Have you ever thought about that? You see, the Lord answers prayers many times in a way that we would never have expected. Many times we do not see the fruit or the, the results of the answered prayers that the Lord gives to us. But when we come to a passage in the Bible that we don't understand, the problem is not with the Lord. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is right here and right in here. Have faith in God. That's what Jesus says in verse 22. Have faith in God. In other words, don't put your trust in yourself. Don't put your trust in yourself. Have faith in God. Why, why is this here? Why is this here at this point in the scriptures? Have faith in God, not in yourself. You see, those who have true faith in God will produce fruit. 
Those who have true faith in God will produce fruit. Those who trust in themselves will be out for themselves. They will be like the fig tree, leaves but no fruit. They will be like the money changers and sellers in the temple, outward religion but no heart-level worship. But I take you back to the beginning. We began with fig leaves. We began with fig leaves, and we end with fig leaves. Where else have we seen fig leaves in the Bible? Where else have you seen fig leaves in the Bible? It was two people trying to disguise themselves, to hide what's really there. right? Adam and Eve, trying to hide their own nakedness and their shame before God and before one another. That is outward religion by itself. Outward religion by itself is an attempt to hide what you really know about yourself. An attempt to put on a show for God and for others to try and convince them that you are good and that you are righteous and holy. But deep down you know going through the motions of religion has not fixed the problem. Something is still missing. Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves and if you follow the story, God comes down, and they, they learn that figs, fig leaves wouldn't do it. Fig leaves were not a proper covering. They could not cover themselves. They needed a proper covering, and only God could do it. And the same is true for us, brothers and sisters. Only God can give us the covering that we need. The freedom of the gospel is this. Not that you're completely uncovered but that you're covered in the proper way. You can't cover your sins, but God can. God is saying, why don't you drop those flimsy fig leaves and let me give you a proper covering? In Genesis 3, an innocent life had to die so that Adam and Eve could have proper coverings. And the same is true for us. The only proper covering is the blood of Christ. Only that will cover your sin and your hypocrisy. God is calling us to drop the act, to get real with him in our hearts, to quit hiding behind the fig leaves of church tradition, family tradition, outward religion, to quit resting your confidence and your assurance in yourself and your outward forms, and instead to come to know God truly and deeply in your heart. To give him the darkest, most private corners of your heart. And that's the only way you will ever become the kind of person that produces fruit to the glory of God and for the good of others. That's where we leave it. That's where I'm going to leave you today. Right now, we're going to give a few moments of silent prayer where we ask each and every one of you to go to the Lord and to respond to whatever he has laid upon your heart this morning. God has spoken to us, and now for a few moments, individually, silently, we speak to him. And so respond to him in whatever ways that you need to, but I encourage you to do so from your heart. After we pray for a few moments individually, we'll come back together. We'll have an invitation time where any who need to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. But for now, for these few moments, let's all respond privately.